Welcome to the Other Border Wall podcast. We are a multicultural group of artists in conversation as part of our ongoing creative resistance to borders. Here we speak of the bridges and walls we encounter. We are Tarane Adia, Leah Patgorski, and Jennifer Nagel Myers. Marisa Bautista is a Tex-Mesh Pocha multidisciplinary artist, educator, and cultural worker from Laredo, Texas. She received a Master of Art in Art Education from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology with a minor in Studio Art from Texas A&M International University. Marisa was awarded the SAIC Master's Fellowship in Art Education, and her essay, Unique Voices in Youth Media, was published in the book, Art and Social Justice Education, Culture as Commons. Her work has been screened at various festivals throughout the IFFY Independent Film Festival, Ypsilanti, Mira M-I-R-A-A-A Media Fest, San Antonio Film Festival, and Sydney Las Americas International Film Festival. She has also presented her work at the Creating Justice Symposium, Passage, Visions, the 6th Biennial IAS Conference, Walls, Bridges, Borders, and most recently, the collective exhibitions, The Border is a Weapon and a Cross. Maritza started teaching in 2003 and has sustained meaningful collaborative art practices that explore and create a dialectic milieu inhabited by issues unique to marginalized communities. She is the executive director for Daphne Art Foundation. Her artistic practice explores scavenging, movement, and transportation of goods as they relate to wealth along and across the U.S.-Mexico border. The economic disparities are visible and at times ironic and survival mechanisms of working class people. And just tell me about where, where you were born and raised and what is your experience of becoming an artist how did you know that that was something that existed and when did you know that was something that you wanted to do okay so I was born in Laredo um, in South Texas and um, three years before I was born I'm going back in in the past before I even came into the world my parents moved from the border to Houston Texas which is a major metropolitan city um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's one of the largest cities in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I grew up. I grew up in in Houston, in a you know, in a predominantly African American community. Okay. Um, actually, where I grew up, um, historically, it's like a historical black um, neighborhood area, Acres Home. Okay. Um, it's on the northwest side of Houston. So I grew up, um, you know, that, that's kind of like how I grew up and, and I came up, um, you know, just like as I was developing in life. Um, for art, I would say that because I grew up in Houston, I had more exposure to, to culture, you know, mm-hmm. culture in, in quotations. I mean, my, my brother's who are older than me, I have three older brothers, they were always into drawing and they were very talented. They were musicians. Um, my my mother's father, my grandfather, he was a musician. So I was always around that. Um, like music has always been a big part of our family. But I would say um, 
it took a turn for me that I was like, whoa, this is something that is calling me or I feel very magnetized to it was when I was um, first exposed to a museum as a child um, that I, you know, we, my school, my elementary school took us on a field trip and we were at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston and I walked into this building and I was just blown away and mm. I couldn't believe that, you know, the teachers or the, the, the people who were there, like taking care of us, like they were explaining, um, somebody made this, you mm-hmm. know, like <laughs> this kind of like we use in class and, yeah. and it, it just, it blew my mind that I was like, whoa. And I think that's when my spark for art really started. Um, but I would even say before that, I was always a very creative child. I have three older brothers, but I always felt like an only child. So, and maybe this is oversharing, but I always had like imaginary friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I always felt like I had that extra like creativity. Okay. Um, or I don't know, maybe that was just my escape, right? The, the, to be able to do that. Um, so I was always very involved with art, you know, just from that point on, um, Mm -hmm. I started painting when I was in middle school and, and, um, I always wanted to study art. I didn't get to, um, you know, I have a very, it's, it's, it's interesting and complex and we might get into that. I wasn't able to pursue art as a career initially because of the, you know, because of this idea that my, my parents didn't think that it was an actual career, that mm-hmm. how was I going to, you know, make money from that if I was going to go to school, like I should do something that's going to, you know, that I would, I would be able to have a successful career with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I pursued psychology. Um, that's, that was my major in undergrad and I'm, I did minor in studio art, but Mm -hmm. I, I, I I would say that when I graduated with my undergrad, that's when I was like, you know what, I'm just going to follow my heart because I, I always had that, you know, that desire to, to do something in the arts and, and community arts have always been very important to me and, Mm. and just because I, I saw what it did for me as a person, a growing up and, and art was really always an escape for me. Um, just from, you know, my home life. So I always saw the power in that and I always wanted to be able to share that. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's when I started to work in the arts and from there on, I would, I mean, I was like 23 or 24 years old and this was like 20 years ago (laughs) so I would say that's when I was like I'm just gonna do it and I'm just gonna pursue my heart that's great and what because that's not an easy thing to do especially when you're having pressure from family and just society kind of say pick the thing that you can make earn, earn a living from um so what what was the process of you making that decision and how did you go about implementing um your desire to study art what did you do next right um well i will say this i am first generation college student um so a lot of what i did was on my own mm-hmm. uh, I come from a very traditional, like, Mexican family. Um, my older brothers, they they did 
study, but they did more like technical school. So when I was ready to kind of pursue and I wanted to do the university, um, you know, no one had ever done that in my family. So a lot of it was coming from just me and like asking my teachers and, and really like getting involved in that way and trying to find the answers that I needed. I was like, there has to be a way I can get in there. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause my parents really, they didn't know. Um, and they weren't like the most supportive because they were like, you're going to spend all this money or we're going to spend all this money. And um, you're going to spend all this time going to college and, you know, you need to start making money now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So a lot of it was, you know, and at the end, of course, like my, my parents would take me, you know, my mom would drive me to the college so I could ask questions a lot of it was um, just myself pushing through and trying to find it. Yeah. The same with art. I mean, I was just like, no one is gonna, no one's gonna come and just give me the answers. I, I have to do it. And you know, coming from a working class family, like I did, kind of have that ethic already. Like my parents, they raised us like you have to work very hard. You have to work, work, work to mm. have you know, the things that you want or just to survive. Um, so I would say a lot of my passion and that, that drive came from that, like it can happen. And, and I would always just look at my parents, like their struggles, you know, I was the baby of the family. So I didn't get to experience a lot of like what my, my brothers did Mm. when they were, you know, children and my parents moved to the U S and, you know, I didn't experience like sleeping in someone's garage, you know, Mm. and all these things they did, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I kind of had a little bit more privilege in that sense Mm -hmm. that by the time I came into the picture, my parents were a little bit more established. You know, they, they bought their first home in Houston. So I grew up in that home. I wasn't going, you know, bouncing around kind of like my brothers experienced Mm -hmm. um, when they were kids. Um, So I would say that's where it came from. I mean, just that, that, you know, like I can make this happen and, and I, I just have to work hard. I have to, Mm. I have to try to get there. And, you know, I was just having a conversation with a young, a younger person who reached out to me and she wants to get involved in the arts field. And, and I told her, I'm like, I mean, it's not easy. I, I wish I could just tell you like, do this and do that. I'm like, but you are at such a, an advantage because you have the internet, you know, I didn't even have that when I was growing up. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm like, don't let, don't let anything limit you. Like if you really want to do it, you're going to have to work. I mean, nothing is going to come to you mm-hmm. free or easy. You just have to, you have to make that investment. And I think that's how I always approached it. Okay. Like I really want to do this. And I knew the value that art has I know the value that art has. So to me, I was like, it's, I just have to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Did that answer your question? I feel like I did again. No, you did. You did. Definitely. And then, so what was it, what was it like? You went and, and, and you got a master's degree, um, and, and, and art. So talk about like what, like once you were there, did it meet your, your expectations? What, what surprised you? And what was it like in the art world? <laughs> right. So I have to share this because um, 
you know, Gil Rocha. Mm. <laughs> uh, when I met him was in 2006. And at that time, I was working at the Laredo Center for the Arts here in Laredo. Um, it was after I had graduated and I was like, I'm not going to go into social services. Maybe I'll help the community through art. So I kind of took that direction and I was working at the Laredo Center for the Arts. Um, and at that, I guess that summer, he came down um, to be here for the summer in Laredo and they hired him as the education director coordinator for that summer. And I found out he was a student at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, mm. which blew my mind mm. because it was like the one school, like I remember when I was in high school that I wanted to pursue art and you know how they have like the career days or the college days. Um, and I remember when I found out about that school, I was like, whoa, like I would love to go to this school, you know? And I already shared how my parents were totally against that, but at this point, um, when I met Hill and I found out that he was at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and he was from Laredo and he was kind of like my people, I was <laughs> like, if he can do it, I can do it. Like, mm. it was really that type of, it, it just seemed so far removed for me that I didn't even think I had a chance to, to go to that school. Um, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago is one of the most, you know, famous schools and institutions in the world when it comes to art. Um, And I just remember him saying, yeah, no, and I was also inspired by this person and you should apply, you never know. Um, So because I didn't have like the studio background um, and I was already working in community arts and I already kind of had the exhibition experience because I was a gallery coordinator at the Laredo Center for the Arts. Um, that's when I decided to pursue art education. Mm-hmm. So I applied for the art education department at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, and I remember when I applied and I had that first interview with with the department I don't remember if he was, if he was a department chair or just the graduate program director, but he, I had so many questions, like so many questions that he's like, I feel like you're interviewing me. And I was like, I was like, I just never thought I would even be at this point where it it could be possible. Um, so I applied and I got accepted and I was, my, my life turned around. I mean, I was just like, wow, I can't believe that this school accepted me and you know I was very fortunate I got a scholarship so I you know I didn't even think about it I was like bye yeah. bye Texas <laughs> you know? Windy City hello to Chicago yeah so this was in 2007 when I got oh. into that program that's phenomenal and I mean it, it was another world, you know, talk about like orientation day, they're talking about all the resources that are available. You know, if you're a student there, you have access to so many things, like so many things that I, I mean, I can't even go over at this moment, mm-hmm. but it, it was something else. Wow. Definitely a privilege. Yeah. Yeah. And so did you, were you able to like automatically kind of meld into the community there did it feel like this is exactly where I was supposed to be? These, these, these are my people. I'm learning where I'm supposed to be learning. Yeah, so it's funny that you say that because 
or that you asked me that because I grew up in Houston, which I mentioned, and Houston is very diverse. Um, when I moved to Laredo, and I kind of left this part out, so I moved to Laredo um, because I transferred to go to the university here. Mm. I really wanted to leave home. I mm-hmm. wanted to have that experience when I was young. Um, and my parents, again, because I come from a traditional Mexican home, they were like, there's no way you're leaving this home until you're married mm-hmm. and leave this home. And so, you know, I was like, but I want to leave. I want to leave. And my mom said, the only way you can leave is if you go somewhere where you have family, which is mm-hmm. how I ended up in Laredo uh, because my grandparents lived here and some other family. Mm-hmm. So I moved with that was, I would say, the most the most intense culture shock I've ever experienced in my life. Mm. Um, Laredo is predominant. It's like 95% Mexican, Mexican, American, Hispanic, Latinx, however you want to identify it. Um, So it was more like where I came from, like my, you know, I was coming from a Mexican home, but it was such a culture shock because I was not used to it. Mm -hmm. You know, even though I, was only speaking in Spanish at home with my parents and speaking English, at, you know, at school. Um, here, everywhere I went, people were speaking Spanish, and it was it was cool. But and I understood the language, but the way people received me wasn't as welcoming as I thought. Oh, okay. Because I was coming from Houston, I remember. I don't know what it was, but. I kind of experienced this clash of like people telling me, oh, you think you're white, you know, like, uh, you think you're, white. you know, in retrospect, now I get it. Mm, but mm. I didn't know growing up because it was just my life, you know, like it was just like, you know, I went to all English speaking schools, you know, um, I was in the bilingual program. But only up until I was in the fourth grade. So, like, you know, but then I was, like, in regular classes. So I was, like, mingling with everyone. That's just what I was used to. And then I moved here, and it was super culture shock. So when I moved to Chicago, I was like, this, I'm more familiar with this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's people from everywhere in the world. You know, it's it's a, it was a lot about, like, kind of, getting to know different cultures again and, and just kind of being able to experience um, that type of, um, you know, diversity yeah. where here in Laredo, we lack, you know, we, you know, it lacks just because of where we are also. I mean, we're on the U.S.-Mexico Mexico border. Um, it's, you know, a lot of the families that are here are rooted here and mm-hmm. have been for a very long time. A lot of people in Laredo, they don't leave, you know, mm. they, they just kind of, this is their home and, and that's fine, you know? Yeah. Um, so it was, it was exciting. Um, it, I did feel very welcomed, you know, um, you know, and then of course, because I went for grad school, it was just intensely related. My move was so intensely related to that. You know, I had a small cohort, um, there was like 15 of us in the group. Of course, it was predominantly white, you know, so it was like there was some other complex issues there. But but the, you know, overall, it was it was very welcoming. I was very excited. Nice. That's really cool. So what were some of the because you were in art education. 
So uh, how did that art education turn, degree turn into art making and art, art administration? Right. Um, so I've been creating art for a long time. I mean, I would say ever since I started painting as, you know, a young person, um, it just was always part of my, the things that I like to do. So I was always kind of creating, I would paint mostly. Mm -hmm. And then I got into sculpture at one point, like in my early twenties. Um, but then yes, I started focusing more on like arts administration and, and working with artists, which I always really enjoyed, like just getting to know other artists and how they kind of work. Um, so I've always felt like an artist, but I never really identified as one. And then especially going to art school where I'm like, okay, yeah, like these people are really artists. I'm not really an artist, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I would say I always maintained that practice, even if it was kind of like more behind the door. Um, but in grad school, even though my field or my track was art education, um, by that point, I was like 27, 28 years old, and I already had like a very, I've always been very interested in, in politics and the economy. So that's where I just started thinking of how can I do something with this interest and, and kind of connect it to things that matter to me and kind of create something right like art that kind of touches on these things and not necessarily just because a lot of the art that I used to make was you know I would do like a lot of landscapes I wouldn't have a lot of um it wasn't so conceptual as far as like things that mattered to me it was more like oh I can do this so I'm gonna do it and I know how to paint and I know how to do this but um, I would say that's in grad school, that's where that took a turn for me mm. uh, because I started taking classes that, you know, were more political or kind of opened my frame of mind in that way um, that I was like, okay, I've always been interested in this. Like, why am I, am I not reacting about these things through art? Um, and I would say that's when I kind of picked that up. And plus in Chicago, I don't know if you've ever been, but you know, it's a very, you know, it has so much history, political history. Um, and, and I really like identified with that, even though in Texas or just my personal experience was so removed from that, um, like I started working with activists. I started like just getting to know all these people. And for me, it was like, oh, I didn't know I could do this, you know? And I was in my twenties, like in my late twenties already. So it was like, that's how removed I was from this world of people who were really looking, not just looking at issues that were important to them, but they were, you know, creating art to reflect what they were experiencing or seeing um, in relation to those things. So that's where I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, um, because growing up, I 
I did experience a lot of injustices or I witnessed a lot of injustices just in my home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, you know, through my, through my brothers, you know, things they experienced as, you know, Mexican American men and, and like injustices that happened to them and my, 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 my parents, you know, the stories they would share with me or, you know, even just the schools that I went to, you know, like, it was always the black and brown kids that were always getting criminalized. We were always the bad ones, you know? And it's like, so I already had a lot of that kind of building up inside of me. Um, but I didn't know that you could express it through art mm. until I made it to Chicago. You mm. know? So that's where I was like, okay, no more excuses. Like I have to do it. And, um, I was, I used to work with this organization called Inside Arts. Um, it was specifically a social justice-based arts organization. It no longer existed. It has dissolved since, um, but it was around for a long time. It was an organization that was started by youth, um, you know, Chicago, like from the Rogers Park community. Mm. Um, and they were doing, you know, um, programming around social justice, you know, using hip hop and, and art. And, you know, so, um, we did a lot of work when I, when I was there, we did a lot of work with different issues, you know, and one of the organizations that I started working with was the Latino union of Chicago. Um, I was going in as a volunteer, I was thinking this is a good opportunity for me to kind of get back and get more involved. Um, I was thinking I'm going to go in and teach English, you know, because I can do that and I can speak Spanish and I can communicate. And um, But during the time, I was taking a documentary class of documentary film produced south of the equator in the 60s and 70s that's like the class i was taking and i mentioned it to the men at that point there were primarily men in the in the organization who were day laborers um and i mentioned it to them and they were like we want to make a movie like you know Mm. and i'm like oh my goodness i was like maybe this is a great opportunity for me to bring those skills here and you know these men already have their stories or journeys they're going to be in charge of what they want to talk about so i talked to the to the executive director me and another organizer who i was working very closely with you know, and I said, do you think this, this might be something we can do? Can we, can I, I can do it, you know, instead of teaching English, I can teach, it could be like an art class. And, you know, he's like, well, let me bring it up with the, with the members and see how they feel. Well, everybody said yes, well, most of them. So um, that's what we did. And that's the first time that I did like a short documentary project and I did it in collaboration with the workers for the Latino Union of Chicago um they were this this group of men they were um it was called I'm trying to remember the name it was like the worker center it was Mm. located in Albany Park which is in one of the neighborhoods and it was kind it was their safe space 
So instead of them being in the streets looking for work, they would come in, they would become members of the Latino union, they would come in, they would sign up and they would be there. And if people wanted mm. to hire them, they would come in and go through the union. So mm. they had that, 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 that backup. Oh, wow. And that was that was that your first film project? That you ever did? That was the first one, yeah, wow. that I did collaboration. Yeah, that and, and really focus on something political because I had done I had done another short film but it was more like, you know, again, I was so removed from oh, I can actually do this. I was just kind of making creative projects, but they were they really didn't have that fire that I would say they needed it was more like just experimental things or silly things or um but yeah that was the first time and they pretty much directed it I was just there to assist them mm. you know I let them take the lead they wanted to do a commercial of of and I can send you the link to this yeah. they wanted to do a commercial to kind of help them get work and so people would know that they were there and they existed this was in 2008 going into 2009 okay. uh, so this was a while back and that's how I got into producing short documentary film um, when I talked about that project with who's now my collaborator Marcela Moran at that time this was back in 2009 you know I was telling her about the Jornaleros and I was like we should make we should make a bigger movie like Let's try to get funding. And so we started working, you know, on our treatment for the film and everything. Um, we never got any funding, but we were able to travel to New York City to we I remember we interviewed a bunch of um, labor organizers and we even talked to some day laborers there. Um, artists, activists. We we did a whole bunch of interviews. We did that in Chicago as well. But then. Um, what ended up happening, because when we were in in, in New York, sorry, um, we got in contact with a nanny. And she said, oh, I have a lot of friends who are nannies. Maybe they would be willing to share their story with you. So we ended up not doing the, you know, across the nation day labor story. We focused it more on these women um, who traveled to the U.S. who made that journey to have a better life and and they ended up in New York City or you know surrounding Connecticut around those areas um, women from Central America who made that journey and they ended up working as nannies and they shared their story um, that was the first one the first um, documentary um, that I co-produced with Marcela Moran that one's called Jornaleras mm. And that was, we we finalized the project in 2014, but we started doing a lot of the work in 2010 for that. Mm. So that came from that mm -hmm. experience. Yeah, yeah. So it, it seems that this storytelling and people are the center of, of your work. Mm -hmm. um, and you talk a lot about, with the stuff that, that, that we see in the Border is a Weapon, exhibit that if the people aren't in the videos the people are still present so can you talk about the work that 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 is currently on view and um mm -hmm. 
part of your kind of art legacy of, of bringing people in that maybe aren't always seen in the galleries and the art spaces. Right, right. Yeah, so in The Border is a Weapon, um, I include work from my Casas de Cambio series. So the Casas de Cambio are money exchange locations. Um, and yes, exactly as you said, I always say that that work is about people, even though the bodies aren't present. Um, I have a big interest in the economy and 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 just how economy we all have an economy but how wealth money and how it moves along and across the border affects our lives depending on where you are what side you're on where on the ladder of class you are um so that work in particular has to do with that um i'm not an economist <laughs> i don't specialize in money exchange and i like to say that because i think um, I am looking at this and coming from from a perspective as an artist and, and just taking in these different um, things that I see and, 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 and really thinking deeply of how how these transactions like affect our lives as people. Um, so it has to do a lot with here in Laredo on the border where I am specifically located. Um, I know a lot has happened since the pandemic, you know, we all experienced the pandemic, but even prior to the pandemic, I would say when e-commerce became really big, um, that everyone starts shopping online, mm -hmm. you know, and looking for deals. And it's so easy to do that now, you know, like whatever it is that you need, whether it's fake flowers or candles or or if you need clothes, like it's so easy to go online and try to find the cheapest deal. And I think that, that that's when I started to see a change in the landscape here in Laredo. Um, because downtown Laredo, there's a lot of shops um, that I would say, mm, a lot of things have happened, right? Mm. So I'm not trying to jump back and forth too much. But, um, and, may, and maybe I should go a little bit back before you know, kind of just to paint the picture of where this interest comes from. So um, in the 90s, specifically in 1994, when NAFTA became a policy, um, you know, it destroyed Mexico, you know, and I, and I would I would say this is just like an observation that I've witnessed um, because it led to the shrinking of the peso, right? The peso is a currency that Mexico uses. Um, and, you know, when that happens, like a lot of people end up being in poverty that weren't already in mm -hmm. poverty. Um, so what happens, people are trying to survive, you know? Um, and I would say that during that time is when, and I'm not an expert when it comes to the drug war and all that, but I would say that's when we start to see a lot of violence kind of happening um, on the other side of the border in Mexico, um, because people are trying to survive. People are trying to do what they need to do to make money. Um, I would say that's when the rise of the cartel started happening. So in the early 2000s, in 2004, 10 years after NAFTA, um, that's when the violence really erupted here. Like when we 
really identifying it and witnessed it because it was like an everyday thing and horrific traumatizing things were happening um a lot of people started experiencing this type of sadistic violence Mm -hmm. right um and i can say as someone that lives on the u.s side on the border it it really has not been that horrible here but just the fact that it's happening very close to where we are and we have family over there it becomes something that's it's it's so traumatic just to think how people have to live right across the border so close um when we're really like we were like one community and then all of a sudden these things happen that really start to divide us um and and just because of lack of resources right and other things that happen um so moving forward i would say like going you know i go to grad school i come back to laredo this i come back to laredo in 2014 um and this is the downtown area is still you know, doing rather well. I would say a lot of stores are open. You know, there's a lot of business. We still get a lot of traffic coming from Nuevo Laredo pedestrians, um, people that come by foot, I mean, um, you know, and they're they're coming here to buy stuff because sometimes it's cheaper for them to buy stuff here on this side than it is in the Mexican side. Um, just because of that import export mm-hmm. kind of trade going back and forth, um, but then e-commerce happens and a lot of stores start closing. So you see that shift. Um, people don't have a place, don't have a place to shop anymore because a lot of the downtown stores here in Laredo, um, you know, it's, it's, I'm, you, you're in Pittsburgh, right? I'm mm-hmm. trying to think. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's an area in Pittsburgh or areas where you can go and you can get a lot of merchandise from like, or you'll see stores that sell a lot of stores that sell a lot of stuff from like Taiwan, Tokyo, Japan, like really cheap things, Mm -hmm. you know, because of the way they're being made and manufactured and, you know, traded. So you would see a lot of that stuff here in downtown Laredo. And then all of a sudden, a lot of those stores start going away. I, during that time, this was like 2015, 2016, I just started, I wanted to know more. So I would become friendly with like the owners of the stores, whoever would be willing to talk to me. And I had so many questions. I was so curious, like, how are you surviving? Like, you know, like, what, what are you doing? And, and, and some of them would tell me, you know, this has never happened in 30 years. We've always had a lot of business and all of a sudden, and of course they're blaming Amazon. It's because now in Amazon, you know, Mm -hmm. like get whatever you want and people rather just shop like that. And, um, you know, which makes a lot of sense, you know, it, it kind of, this, this, this new, um, emergence of, of like being able to access what you need and consume and quickly, you know, you can, if you're a prime member, you get things the next day sometimes. Mm -hmm. So like this immediacy, like people are so obsessed with like getting and consuming things and getting them quickly. Um, and not having to go out right to the stores or, or out in the heat here. Um, but that's when I started to notice like, okay, all these stores are closing, but 
we have all these money exchange locations, you know? And that's where I really started to look at it on a deeper level where I was like, something else is happening here. You know, obviously this is about, um, and again, this is just my interpretation, but I'm like, something is happening. Like, where is this money coming from? How is it getting here? Who's making these transactions? Um, and where is that money going? There's because mm-hmm. there's so many locations all over in Laredo, but specifically in the downtown area, we're very close to the border. I mean, you can walk from downtown Laredo to downtown Nuevo Laredo, which is on the Mexican side. Um, so that's where I started to really like look at these locations that they always seemed empty, but they were always booming with business. So that's what I meant about it's about people, even though the bodies are in prison and, 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 and just knowing that the transactions that are happening, this money that's being funneled or being exchanged or however you want to look at it, I feel like it has a lot of weight on it. Um, so the word peso also means weight in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always think of that, like that play on that word, how it's like you're exchanging vessels for dollars. And it's kind of like that weight of the people that are stuck in poverty or the weight of the people that are being disappeared or being like taken advantage of, exploited. Um, a lot of it has to do with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels so much like... Black communities, poor communities everywhere in the U.S. where you might not see a bank, you might not see, you know, but you'll see a rent, a rent-to-own store. You'll see the the currency exchange stores where, you know, it's, it feels like it's um, the, the opposite of wealth <laughs> building. It's like, uh, it's um, almost feels like a a roof or a, you know a barrier to actual yeah. having the resources that you need to have right 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 and then also like those checks checks um or personal loans that you can yeah. get mm. like all those places exist there um and it's really just to trap people mm-hmm. you know because who goes to those places? People who don't have IDs, people who don't have bank accounts, yeah. you know, people who can't do that. So it's like this system that just keeps controlling and continues to exploit people who don't have resources. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with that for me. I think that's so important. Um just always have those people present even though I don't know who they are or I don't really know where the money's coming from mm-hmm. or why it's getting exchanged like I feel like those are the people that I'm thinking about you know because we we tend to just oversee that um we're so busy with our everyday life or we're so busy consuming mm-hmm. you know I live here I'm I mean I'm also part of this system you know it's a capitalist system um you know, I have to work to pay my bills just like everybody else. But then we, we, you know, we're so busy in that daily grind that we forget about, you know, the realities or, or we don't think about those things that are really happening mm-hmm. so that we are comfortable. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. 
knowing, yeah, having a sense of all the different layers around it. It's hard to, yeah. There's, I'm thinking too about, um, you had other, an, another work that had to do with cardboard boxes that, mm-hmm. that we, that we saw in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk a little bit about that series of work as well? Right. So that, so in general, I'm very focused in movement, transportation, you know, and kind of this exchange of goods and scavenging practices. So my cartonation series, which is about cardboard scavenging, um, is related to all this um, interest that I have on, on how goods move. Um, here, here in the U.S., um, it's very hard to, I don't, I don't know, again, I'm not an expert, but I don't even think now we have recycling figured out, even though it's like this thing that everyone pushes for, it's like recycle, 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 but where are those items going, right? Mm. Um, They're not getting recycled, you know, they're just being piled somewhere in the middle of the ocean or in other places getting shipped to third world countries, you know, and it's like, I, I I started to kind of really get this interest with the, the cardboard scavengers because they've always been a part of the landscape here. Ever since I remember, ever since I was a little kid, when we would come to Laredo, um, you would always see them in downtown Laredo. Um, so I always had that interest too. Like I wanted to know more about them. And, and um, I eventually, I did approach them and I asked, you know, I kind of explained I'm an artist, you know, I, I've been taking photos in downtown Laredo, would it be okay if I take photos of you? Um, very, very nice people, very hardworking people. And, you know, I would go like once a week and then next thing you know, I'm hanging out with them every day, like helping them pick up cardboard <laughs> and trying to really get to know their story and understand a little bit more from where they're coming from. Um, so the, the cardboard scavengers, and, and this is just one family that I was talking to. Um, they're pretty much like in charge of the downtown area or they were because again, this was pre pandemic, a lot changed during the pandemic. Um, so I should say that, um, they live on the Mexican side and every day around 2 PM, they cross to the U S side and that's when they start to pick up cardboard. And because this is just a practice that's been happening here on the border for so long, I don't even know how far back it goes. They have, um, you know, like verbal contracts with the store owners. And instead of the store owners throwing the cardboard away, they collect it, they put it on the side for the cardboard scavengers. And then at a certain time, you know, maybe around three or 4 p.m., they start to put the cardboard on the sidewalks of the streets. So by the time they cross, they the cardboard is already lined up on the streets in downtown Laredo. And they just start to break it down. You know, mm-hmm. every, there's the, the family that I was working with or getting to know, there were a family of three um, who were still doing that, the husband and wife and one of the daughters. Um, so they would cross and they would each go to their respective area in downtown Laredo and they would just start collecting cardboard. 
breaking it down, piling it up, and then they would take it to like a central location in downtown where they already knew they were going to meet. So by the end of the day, like around eight or nine, they are, they've already collected all the cardboard in downtown Laredo. And the, the husband, um, Don Jose, he's the one who would start organizing all the cardboard on the trucks because they would use the the tricycle like kind of i don't know if you know what they are triciclos it's like an old bike transformed into like this little so they would collect it there and then they would move it to the central location and then don jose would start unpacking it from there and packing it onto the vehicles and they at that time when I was there with them, they would have three pickup trucks and they would collect it all and they would organize it, tie it up, and then they would cross it to Mexico because in Nuevo Laredo, they do have a recycling center for cardboard. So they take the cardboard over there and that's how they, you know, that's how they survive. I mean, that's how they make their money. That's their labor. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So I've done a lot of photos um, documenting their process. And then actually, as a matter of fact, just recently, my my collaborator, Marcela, and I, and I just finished the documentary, short documentary that we're going to, we did of, of them and, and their story. So we're currently trying to get it into film, into the film festival circuit. Mm. So that's, that's happening now as well. Wow. Wow. So I'm curious because I didn't get a chance to go to Laredo, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what is what is the relationship with the city and the border? Mm. How do people see it? Um, is it an activist community where people are like, hey, this is we need to get rid of this wall or we want to have it. We want to make sure that it stays open. Like what is the what, what's the conversation around the politics of, of, of the border? Right. Right. Um, I wouldn't say that we have a huge activist community here in Laredo, but there are um, groups. Well, there's like the No Border Wall Coalition. There's the Rio Grande, Rio Grande study for um, it's called risk or that's that's what it's the Rio Grande International Science Center. it's a nonprofit that they do a lot of work around environmental issues. So they were a big proponents um, along with the No Border Walk Coalition. And there's some city officials and, and other people who really, you know, did a lot of work to stand against the wall. Um, so just this past weekend, this past weekend that, that just happened, um, they celebrated... Um, the one year anniversary, um, I'm trying to, the one year anniversary of the Department of Homeland Security canceling the border wall contracts for the southern border, because here in Laredo, we don't have a wall. Um, and that same group that they just held a press release, I want to say on Friday, they called on President Biden's administration to direct the funds. Uh, to support the construction of a binational river conservation corridor. Um, And this would be to invest those monies um, into really creating the critical infrastructure that's needed because that is our drinking 
like that's our only water source like that's our source for drinking water the Mm -hmm. rio grande so um they're they're i mean the fight continues the struggle is is real right Mm -hmm. um because you know they're so you never know with like those things because they're so big so much money is involved that you know of course like there's interest on various sides for different reasons but i would say that there is still a very strong group of people who are fighting against it and really trying to get justice around the river and and our water source drinking water source Mm -hmm. that's that's important and um i guess i have a couple more questions for you um and thinking about like just your experience of growing up in Houston and then living in Chicago and having the the experience of being a, in, in, in a multicultural environment and multicultural community, what do you think we need to do to connect um, people who have been historically discriminated against, um, people of the global majority, people of color, how do we connect ourselves in a way that we can fight with each other and for each other? A lot of times I, feel, I get this sense of, because I've, I've lived in Chicago, I've, li- I've lived in Los Angeles, and this kind of black versus brown situation and this anti-blackness that shows up in lots of different ways throughout different cultures, how can we come together you know to really be like we are we are in this together we need to fight with each to fight with and for each other in in community rather than against um just from your experiences of being in various communities what do you think we need to do dismantle white supremacy (laughs) yay (laughs) yes let's do that Um, yeah dismantle systemic oppressive systems you know i think you know yes based on my experiences and and just like um really caring about humanity or really wanting to see a more just and equitable future for everyone like i think one of the things that continues to separate us are these ideas, you know, this, these systemic ideas that are fed into us every day in different ways. Um, Because I agree, I mean, I think that, you know, there's a lot of power in people. And if we were to be together instead of against each other, we could really make a difference. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of um, black and brown men um, or other men of color and women um, you know, they're, they're suffocated because they're, um, and I'm specifically thinking right now, like people who are incarcerated, mm-hmm. you know, people who end up in prison for, you know, maybe not always the right reasons or for, you know, unjust reasons, even in those systems and in, in those institutions, they're being fed or they're being like, those ideas like we have to be against each other are are being infiltrated on them you know and and i think that happens a lot even for us that are out right out in 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 just everyday life um and you know unfortunately um black people um you know we're made to and i'm saying we as someone that's not black 
um, we're, we're made, we're fed these ideas that we have to be scared of the black person. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think that happens a lot. Mm -hmm. And because a lot of us are not exposed or we, we don't see the humanity in like, this is a person just like you and me, you know, like we're always like looking at color, um, unfortunately. So, I do think that if we dismantle white supremacy, this idea that white is superior, um, we can get closer to to working together. And and that's a really big feat. I mean, how do you dismantle white supremacy when this country is built on that? Yeah. No. Um, I think it's possible. But will it happen in my lifetime i don't know and not and not to say that i'm 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 saying it's not possible because mm -hmm. i i don't think that white is superior yeah um and but how do you change that frame in other people's heads right like even people who will say i'm not racist right <laughs> i'm not racist i have a black friend yeah. it's like hmm like, yeah, but if, like, really put yourself in a situation where if you had to look at two people, who are you going to be scared of and why? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that if we openly talk about these things, um, it gets us closer to that, to kind of dismantle that oppressive system. But... I don't know. I mean, I always, I'm always like, we have to dismantle white supremacy. <laughs> and people don't think that that's the biggest issue. <laughs> it's wild. So how do you, how do you do that? You know, I think it's possible. Yeah. I think it's possible for us to all work together and, and to dismantle it. But because it's so internalized in us, it's, it makes it hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I'm curious. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with what you said about recognizing it in ourselves because we've really internalized this white patriarchal capitalist power structure. And it's hard to imagine it any other way because we kind of get this sense that it's always been this way. But I know that's, that that's not true because there's no way human beings would, would have survived. I also know it's not true because whiteness is an invention that's only a few hundred years old. Um, I know that there were other ways of celebrating creation, creativity in the cosmos that included women, priests, and goddesses. So this idea even of one god, one white god, one white male god also adds to it. And then all the stories that we tell, the Hollywood stories where most of the superheroes or the captains or the presidents or the leaders are also men or also white men. So it's like we have to really look at all the ways that we've been indoctrinated and it really and and to start start internally, start inside and just kind of say, well, if I identify as white, what does that mean? And if I identified as white, what have I given up for this white box that I now have? And a lot of the history and heritage of Europeans 
have been kind of traded for Americanness and whiteness in America, um, which really like what what is white culture? What is white American culture? Like, how do you identify it? What are the different parts of it? Um, it's not much to kind of promote <laughs> other than, I mean, I, like, like white American culture is just the constant stating that white is superior, regardless of all evidence pointing to that not being true. Um, so I do think that it's internalized. I do think also outwardly it's the conversation, it's the challenging of. Um, I do think it is, as of yesterday, paying people fair wages, paying pe- people equitably, um, not based on gender, not, not based on race, not based on what you think their family situation is and who, who is or who isn't a provider. Um, and I think it comes down to looking at what are the, what, what, whatever land I'm on, what is the indigenous knowledge that's been erased? How can we implement that in order to save all of us, all living things in that space? Because whatever that, whatever those, those, the knowledge was, is what survived millennia after millennia. And now we, in the quote unquote industrialized, civilized world, have only had a couple hundred years and have really messed things up. Uh, so I think it's, 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 it's internal, it's, it's remembering what we know inside ourselves. It is, it is rejecting whiteness as an identity and really developing, redeveloping a sense of the different European tribes and peoples. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's the only way we're going to make it. Um, as a as a people, as humans, if we dismantle white patriarchal power, um, I hope we do it. I don't know. Right. I used to be more optimistic. I think that the the pandemic has made me question what the average person in America is willing to do to be to. To, to care for themselves and, and care, care, care for each other. Right. Yeah. Well, I want to say, just because I know this is a podcast, like, I am Mexican. Um, I, you know, my parents are Mexican. They're from Mexico. You know, a lot of people always tell me, like, well, you're not Mexican. You're American. And it's like, well, we're American if we put it in the perspective of the continent. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like, but, you know, my parents are Mexican and and I'm very, I have a lot of pride with that because again, um, I know that their struggle was not easy, but I also, I'm a, I'm very aware that where, where I came into the picture, I was born into so much more privilege than even my brothers were. Mm -hmm. And I'm not dark skinned, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, fairly fairly you know have fair skin Mm -hmm. um but i do think that there are some signifiers like when people can't see me or they can't like um if they can't see me and they have information about me they automatically make assumptions right um so you know my name my background you know or you know a lot of people don't understand you know a lot of people have this ideology like well we all have the same opportunities you know we all have the 
we we have the same access to opportunities and and where okay maybe that's true i'm like yeah but you're not black <laughs> you know because i feel like the close the further away you are from white like that's where you really start to realize how this world is really set up or how our country is really set up for failure when you're not white mm -hmm. when you're not a man mm -hmm. when you're not able-bodied you know yeah. like you're like there's these real systems of oppression that exist that really affect how far we can or cannot achieve things and it's not because we don't have the intelligence or the drive it's that the way the system is set up it really is set up for some of us to fail yeah. you know and this is where my work where when i talk about the casas de cambio it has a lot to do with that it's not that people want to be poor it's not that people don't want to work You know, it's not that people don't want to be educated. It's that the way the system is set up, some of us are automatically set up to fail, are automatically set up to not be able to get ahead because of the way the system is. Um, so while some of us are very hardworking, people like the cartoneros, the cardboard scavengers that I was talking about, you know, I can never put myself on the same place as them because automatically just from where I came from or even my parents, like what I was born into, they were not born into. Mm. Um, they experienced a lot of, you know, a lot of the bad things, right? When they came to the U.S. as Mexican people who came here in the 70s, Um, you know, the, they didn't speak the language, they didn't look white, you know, they were automatically labeled as others or people that are here to take our resources or people who are, you know, um, and I have a very easy life. Um, you know, yes, I have my struggles, my battles, but I'm so grateful to, you know, grateful to my parents for making that journey, but I also can just live my life knowing that, oh, everything is perfect and, you know, um, great. It isn't because while I, I am very privileged, like I also know that injustices happen all the time. And a lot of times they happen just because based of who you are, what you look like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, yeah. and that's where I feel like a lot of people don't, don't necessarily believe in that framework um and how do you unlearn that right how or how do you communicate that to someone like you as a black woman how do you communicate that to you know someone who is not in your body mm -hmm. who does have you know maybe other opportunities you're very successful and i have so much admiration and respect for the work you do but It's not easy, I'm sure, for you as a black woman to get around. Um, and I think until we're able to acknowledge that, you know, as people who are non-black, um, we're not going to be able to move away from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's really important. Thank you for that. Um, I did want to ask you about what you're working on now. What are you excited about? What's coming up for you creatively um, this year that you'd want to tell people about? Yeah, so um, 
I'm excited this summer. Um, I was just invited to be, um, I don't even have all the details yet, but for coming up this summer to participate on a panel with the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Um, It's geared for their, I think their teacher programs. Um, So I'm preparing for that. Um, I also, the Art Cartoneros film project was recently accepted into the uh, National Communications Association um, conference. So we're going to be presenting that later this this year in the fall. Um, and then I'm also just personally on a creative level, just thinking of how I can continue to push myself as an artist. And, and I don't have space. Um, I don't have a studio. Um, so just thinking of how can I continue to engage and and how can I really bring these um, ideas forward in a way where where it really is going to cause people to wake up a little bit and maybe hopefully have dialogue around those issues. Um, that's really important to me. So just trying to figure that out. I'm also trying to finally make a website. Um, I don't have a website at the moment. Okay. I've been trying to really make that happen. I just, I haven't. Um, so I'm hoping to have a website before the end of the year. Um, so, you know, and of course continue, um, um, I don't know. I have other projects in mind that I don't want to necessarily say, but, um, yeah, just staying engaged and, and really, um, engaging with my art and with my art in a way where it's really going to reach people. Um, you know, because it's non-traditional. I, I'm not a painter. I, you know, I don't make sculptures. I, I really, um, and also trying to find space for me, you know, and, and build community with people who are like-minded um, or just have similar values than I do. Um, I think there's a lot of people, a lot of power, I'm sorry, in people working together and building community. Um, that's something that's really important to me. And, and I feel like at this point in my life, um, I really want to, 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 to work on that and build community here where I am. Um, so we can really, really start addressing these issues that I think, um, are really important. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you. Well, thank you for all of your amazing work. Um, it's just so powerful and wonderful to have had the exhibit here in Pittsburgh and it's really cool that it's in Laredo now and just so just really important and I love the way that you are such an amazing storyteller and the way that your videos move I feel like I feel like there's there's so much movement in the video and so that being part of 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 what your art practices and what your stories are it's so it's so powerful and just thank you for for your work thank you so much um before before i go i do want to acknowledge um the land that i'm on i want to acknowledge that the work that i'm doing um i am residing on the ceded and unceded territory of the alazapas and Coahuiltecan peoples um, that also includes the Lipan Apache and Carrizo Come Crudo peoples. Um, I think that's very important that that is here in Laredo, Texas. And I'm deeply grateful to be here. And I do seek to treat this land and, and everyone who's here with the same depth of care 
to which these territories have been attended to. And that was the Other Border Wall podcast. Thank you for listening. We look forward to the next time we all meet. Stay tuned for more every two weeks. Thank you.